This is the Longevity Now podcast. This is the podcast for the widest variety and most relevant news and views of life extension from around the world. This week, we are once again profiling the work at one of Longevity's affiliate labs. The SENS Research Center is leading the charge in the damage theory of aging, one part of the human system that is damaged and declines in function as we age is the cellular mitochondria. The SENS idea to fix this problem termed mitosens is one of the more ambitious and technically difficult fixes for damaged mitochondria. There have been some significant developments lately, and you'll hear about them in this interview with the leader of mitosens, Dr. Matthew O'Connor. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the leader of the Mitosens research effort at the SENS Research Foundation. It's Dr. Matthew O'Connor. Welcome to the program. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. For any first-time listeners, could you provide the kind of cliff note version of Mitosens? Sure. We have been working on technologies to try to develop gene therapy for mitochondrial mutations. The idea being that the mitochondria has its own DNA, its own genes, very few of them, only 13 protein coding genes, but they're all uh, important, essential genes, and they are uh, a problem when they get mutated either when you inherit a mutation from your mother or if you develop a mutation with age. And those mutations that develop with age uh, affect pretty much everyone, correct? Exactly. We don't understand it perfectly yet, but all indications are that mitochondrial function decreases with age uh, and that this is an important aspect of uh, of aging that everyone feels and experiences, for example, in their in their muscles as they get weaker with age. Well, when we last spoke, you were just kind of in the proof of concept stage, trying to move mitochondrial genes into the nucleus. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, the first concept of mitosens was to move some of those uh, protein coding genes into the nucleus where they could be protected and continue to do good work instead of, you know, bad work as mutated uh, genes in the mitochondria do as we age. What's the latest? Have you moved on from the original two genes you were targeting or working with? Yes. So as you point out, the mitochondrial DNA is more susceptible to damage because uh, the mitochondria is specialized for making energy, not for protecting and housing DNA. That's the job of the nucleus, which is where all of our chromosomes live. However, the mitochondria produces energy and a byproduct of the energy production is free radicals, which DNA is very sensitive to. So uh, we've been working on trying to, you know, be able to create a backup copy for any of these 13 protein coding genes in the nucleus. And you raised the two that uh, we had been uh, working on and talking about for, for a while. We published something on those two at the end of 2016. And so that went very well. We were able to show clearly that we could take a cell that was taken from a patient who had a mutation in, in, in two of the 13 genes, it was an overlapping mutation, and uh, rescue that mutation by performing our 
um, our, our gene therapy in a dish, if you will, uh, in, a, in a petri dish on the cells, we could make them behave and, and survive more like normal cells. Oh, so you were able to fix some mitochondrial uh, mutation, or you were able to rescue some mitochondrial function in those cells. That sounds pretty big. Yes. So it was very clear that we could, by a number of measures, we could show the mitochondrial um, uh, energy production. Uh, we could show the mitochondrial oxygen consumption. This is the reason that we breathe, that we consume oxygen, is because our mitochondria need it for energy production. We could show that the, that the oxygen consumption came back. And we could show that their survival under, we could grow the cells under two different conditions, under conditions where the cells could survive without oxygen growing anaerobically, the way cancer cells usually do, uh, the way bacteria grow, uh, or we grew them under conditions where they could only survive aerobically uh, if they could consume oxygen using the mitochondria. And under those conditions, only the rescued cells survived and the mutant cells all died. So you've had some success with those first two genes that you were focusing on. What about the other 11 genes? Any plans to work on those anytime soon? Yes. In fact, we are already working on all of them to various extents. And I can tell you a little bit about that. We're testing, we've made constructs for all of them, meaning we've designed DNA targeting vectors for all 13 of the protein coding genes. And We've tested them to, to various extents for their ability to produce the gene products to send them to the mitochondria, and we've had varying levels of success. So they're not all working uh, phenomenally yet, such that we can declare victory and go home. But uh, you know, we we will have some new progress to to report soon on on well on we'll, we'll report on all of them soon i think I, and we'll just show which ones are working best and which ones are working less well and we'll be able to talk about you know strategies that we're working on to improve the you know continuous process of engineering these genes uh, for targeting to the mitochondria yeah now i'm not a bioengineer and quite a few of our listeners are not bioengineers could you explain the mechanism by which genes that might be sent to the nucleus, the cell nucleus, encode proteins. How do those proteins end up back in a functional spot in the cell like the mitochondria? How does that happen? So the mitochondria only codes 13 proteins. The nucleus codes over a thousand proteins that go to the mitochondria. Oh. So that's more the normal course of events. Whereas the, the weird part is making proteins in the mitochondria. So what we've done is we've studied the way that the nucleus does the job normally and are trying to adapt the mitochondrial proteins to act more like the nuclear ones. So the two super simplest components of that are that, for one, the mitochondrial DNA is written in a slightly different language than the nuclear uh, DNA is written in. They still use the same four bases, uh, the A, T, C, and G, that most of your listeners should be familiar with. Yep. But the, the way that you read that string of, uh, of letters is slightly different. So 
the first thing we need to do is translate that into a language that the nucleus understands. The second thing that we have to do is put a, a targeting sequence on the front of the gene, and this is called a mitochondrial targeting sequence. And what we do for that is that we pick one or, or more uh, to test. We've tested many in our lab of these sequences and put them uh, from move them from a different gene onto in front of any of these 13 genes and use that to target the product to the mitochondria. Well, it sounds pretty difficult, technically speaking. What has been, you've been working on it for a few years now. What's the biggest challenge as far as speeding along this potential therapy to rejuvenate uh, the human body? Well, actually, the two things that I just laid out are uh, relatively the easy part. And the harder part is optimizing the way the code works with the targeting sequence and then other kinds of regulatory sequences that surround the gene uh, upstream and downstream of the gene, where the gene goes into the genome, uh, how many times it's inserted. There's a lot of different aspects to this that we're playing with that end up being the difficult part in understanding how evolution has uh, created the elegant system that it has and figuring out how we can adapt it to the mitochondrial genes. So we're constantly engineering and re-engineering and, and trying different little tweaks to the sequence of, of these genes in order to try to figure out how to improve the production of the gene product, the targeting to the mitochondria, and then the import into the mitochondria, uh, and then measuring whether or not it's behaving functionally. Yeah, and people who follow rejuvenation research, such as the stuff that you're doing, know that it is kind of slow. It is kind of tedious. I mean, this type of work is very complicated. Are there any new tools that you see arriving on the scene that might uh, help produce results more efficiently and faster in the near future? Well, there's two tools that uh, your listeners may or may not be familiar with that are helping us right now. One is that in the in the current era of synthetic biology, where when we have more and more tools to, to create new DNA sequences, such that today it's, it's relatively affordable in the uh, hundreds to low thousands of dollars to have a company synthesize any DNA sequence that we want to test just from scratch. So we can, these days, as opposed to, say, when I was in graduate school, we can just type on a computer the code that we want to create and uh, have it synthesized, as wow. opposed to in the old days when we had to do a lot of uh, fancy tricks that would, you know, take up uh, a scientist's time, you know, weeks and months of their time to create a new version. These days, it's becoming more and more affordable just to type it out and, and send it off. So uh, that's been a huge uh, boon to us and our ability to test new ideas. A second one that your audience has probably heard of is CRISPR. And this is something uh, new, not super new in molecular biology, but new to this project that is allowing us to control where in the nuclear genome we are inserting our our sequences. So that 
just takes out a variable of randomness that traditionally scientists have had to contend with where when you're trying to insert your gene of interest uh, into the genome, usually it goes in randomly anywhere. And uh, th that's an aspect that can, that can complicate things that we are uh, now starting to control by inserting them uh, more specifically using CRISPR. Yeah, everyone who begins any kind of a research project into rejuvenation, you know, there's a lot of companies out there nowadays besides the SENS Research Foundation. You know, they look at one aspect of aging, and then all of a sudden there seem to crop up a few roadblocks or unexpected things along the way. I know you've been very careful in planning out how MitoSENS is going to progress. Over the last couple of years, what has been the most surprising thing or some sort of roadblock that you didn't anticipate? Well, one problem that we have is the models that are available to study mitochondrial mutations and mitochondrial disease are quite limited. The reason is that, I, for example, I was just talking about using CRISPR to target uh, nuclear DNA specifically. Right. Now, that's uh, for inserting our sequences, that's great. But if you wanted to target something into the mitochondria, you can't use CRISPR. It doesn't work there. At least nobody's figured out how to make it work yet. So there's no way to manipulate the mitochondrial genome. That means that nobody can create custom mutations in the mitochondrial DNA. So we are left with random mutations that occur naturally in nature. So furthermore, there aren't very many models of these in, um, in, in model systems that are usually studied in labs like mice. So there are very few mouse models of mitochondrial disease, of mitochondrial DNA available. Uh, and so most of us actually use humans. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we're experimenting on people in our labs, but we do use human cells. But we're we're restricted to cells that are collected from patients who have these very rare mitochondrial mutations. And to make that even a little bit more rare, we, our, my group, is picky about the kind of mutations that we want to study because we want constrained mutations that only affect one, maybe two genes at a time so that we can ask and answer simple questions because trying to, you know, do everything all at once turns out to be a, a, a messy and, and careless way to do it that doesn't res, uh, result in, in results uh, very quickly. So uh, I'd say that's been one of the biggest roadblocks slowing us down is a, is a lack of good cell lines to work with. So we're always on the lookout for in the literature and at conferences for, uh, for the right kind of cells to work on. That does give me a follow-up question. When do you anticipate that you will be working with whole organisms instead of just cells in a petri dish, whether it might be mice or humans? Great question. I have a encouraging answer for you. We will. Uh, we're we're planning on launching some fundraising for a mouse project in the coming months. Uh, we're we're writing up funding proposals for this as we speak. We have quotes from a transgenic mouse facility that could produce the mice for us. We've fully designed the, the mice that we want to make. So there, I said before that it's rare to find 
mice that have these mutations. We have found one. It's not uh, a super, it's not as dramatic of a mutation as uh, the ones that we usually work on in the cell lines, but if it was, then the mouse probably wouldn't be uh, around to be uh, to be talking about it because mitochondrial mutations are so are so damaging to health. But uh, we have one that does have a mild mutation, and we've already done the experiments on the mouse's cells, and they seem to be working. So I think we're going to have mice fairly soon. Now, in mouse terms, you know that's going to be a couple years before we'll have progress to report uh, in terms of actually whether or not we've rescued the mutation, but we should have you know, mice uh, with, our, with our gene in uh, maybe less than a year. Well, that sounds great. Now, final question here. You work with damaged mitochondria and uh, Sen's theory of aging says, hey, let's just fix the damage and things are going to get a lot better. What about what do you have any thoughts on a lot of the current products that are out there that people take supplements that supposedly target mitochondrial function like antioxidants like MitoQ or PQQ or NAD. Uh, what do you think about some of these products? Uh, they all say, of course, they all have marketing that say, you know, it's going to help your mitochondria. It's going to produce more cellular energy, things like that. Do you think there's any efficacy, uh, much, much efficacy with some of these supplements? This is a difficult question for me. It's not my main area of expertise, but I can uh, opine on it a bit. And I would say that there's some, you know, tentative encouraging uh, research suggesting that boosting your NAD levels through, you know, one or more of these uh, supplements that are available might actually be having some beneficial effects on your mitochondrial function. Whether or not that's going to help you stay healthy longer or live longer, I think is is far from a settled question yet. But they they might be modestly boosting uh, mitochondrial energy production, and then the mitochondrial targeted antioxidants are also, I would say, tentatively encouraging. I don't want to recommend that people run out and, and start dosing themselves with it, but I, I do think that it's an area of research worth keeping your eyes on. It is a generation past where we were 10, 20 years ago when everybody was talking about taking mega doses of vitamin C and vitamin E to try to soak up all the free radicals being produced by the mitochondria. It turns out those don't get into your mitochondria efficiently, but some of these targeted ones do seem to get into your mitochondria. Now, the, the hesitation is that this is a sensitive system that you don't want to uh, mess around with too much. So there have been experiments that have shown that some of these targeted antioxidants can do too good of a job and, and actually end up damaging function of mitochondria in, in some of these cases. So I'm going to sit tight before I start taking a lot of these uh, these supplements, but uh, I am keeping my eye on the research. Well, thanks so much for your thoughts on the matter, and thanks for explaining the recent progress in MitoSense. We wish you the best of luck in the future, and thanks for joining us on the podcast, Dr. O'Connor. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
I hope you enjoy the wide variety of life extension topics covered in the Longevity Now podcast. If you have any ideas for guests on the program, you can always make suggestions in the interviews subform in the community resources section of the website, which is longevity.org. I always implore people to keep working toward the goal of age reversal and rejuvenation. One way to get the message out is to share this podcast. If you have friends that are interested in the idea of life extension, they might enjoy longevity now. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.